everyone. This is Safeguarding Matters, a podcast by the Safeguarding Resource and Support Hub, otherwise known as RSH. RSH supports organizations in the aid sector to strengthen their safeguarding policy and practice. I'm Dr. Eleanor Wadinobi, the Senior Advisor for the Nigeria Resource and Support Hub. In these podcast series, we'll discuss matters related to safeguarding, not just in the aid sector, but we'll also have conversations with thought leaders and practitioners who can offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and improve our practices. In today's episode, the panelists will be discussing on the topic funding for safeguarding. I'm sure you would like to know about how we can fund safeguarding. I am very pleased to introduce our panelists for today. We have with us Karen Walker-Simpson, who's the director of Funders Safeguarding Collaborative. We also have Farida Umar Jauro, who's a safeguarding focal person of Gogoji Zumunchi. Zumunchi in Hausa means togetherness. So which is with the Gogoji Zumunchi Development Initiative in Nigeria. And then we have Sati Ikbahindi, who's a safeguarding consultant in Nigeria. Hello to all of you. It's great to have you on this podcast. Now, let me begin with you, Karen. Can you tell us why it is important to fund safeguarding and what funding mechanisms are available? Hi, Eleanor. It's lovely to be here. So I think over the last few years, there's been increasing recognition that safeguarding is so much more than just having a policy and that actually it's the practice that keeps people safe. So while policies can be quite developed quite quickly and easily, building safeguarding practice and embedding that within the culture of your organisation takes more time and it costs more money. And so from a funder perspective, the many of the requirements that funding organizations have have a real cost implication so whether it's training whether it's setting up community-based complaints mechanisms whether it's monitoring and learning from safeguarding they all have a cost and perhaps the most critical factor is making sure that organizations have access to safeguarding expertise and advice which is critical to having effective safeguarding And I recently conducted my doctoral research looking at this. One of the key areas that I found is impacted where funding isn't available is that safeguarding, the safeguarding focal point role or the key role tends to get given to whoever's got the time to do it. 
And so they may not have the right skills or training, and they're often fulfilling this responsibility on top of other roles, which means that they really struggle to balance the different demands on their times, which can have an impact on the implementation of safeguarding and the response to issues that come up. So it's really important for quality that safeguarding is is adequately funded. On a positive note, I think there has been increasing realisation of the need for funding for safeguarding. It was highlighted very strongly in 2018 by the inquiry by the International Development Committee. And the Funder Safeguarding Collaborative has around 60 trusts and foundations from around the world. And I think within our group, our network, there is a real realisation that safeguarding takes time and it takes money. And many of our members now allow CSOs and NGOs to include a budget line for safeguarding, as well as offering additional support, paying for capacity building, giving additional grants. But I know that that's far from universal. So there are some things that CSOs can do to support to help to be able to access funding for safeguarding in their work. So I think the first point is to think about how you frame safeguarding when you're talking to funders. One of the key areas is that it's not an add-on, it's actually a critical part of your programming and the work that the funder is supporting you to deliver. Because if people get harmed in the course of the delivery of the program, then it's not gonna have the positive impact that was intended. So safeguarding has to be a core part of the programme, just as you would have for financial management, monitoring and evaluation and learning. It's also important to integrate safeguarding. And it's in the same way as you would expect to have a budget line for financial management or monitoring, you should have a budget line for safeguarding. And when I'm talking about this, I often talk to organisations about the difference We spend a lot of time and a lot of time and money has been dedicated to keeping the money safe to prevent fraud and corruption. But actually, we need to dedicate the same attention and finances to keeping people safe. The second piece of advice that I would give is to be clear about what you need the money for and why that makes a difference. Many funders actually come to me and they say, We want to, we're thinking about um, allowing organisations to add a budget line for safeguarding, but how much should we allocate? And actually, I think none of us really knows yet because we're moving beyond policy into safeguarding cultures and practice. So if you can be very clear about what you need the money for, it's much easier to make an argument for including that. And actually having a very clear allocation of the different costs associated for safeguarding helps make the argument that it should be its own discrete budget line in your grant proposals. Because actually from a funder perspective, it means that you then have to report on what you have done, which means that there's an accountability and they can see that the money is being used effectively. The final piece of advice is that I would I would really recommend that people talk to funders about this. I think there's the power dynamic means that people are often reluctant to talk to funders about these challenges in case the funder doesn't want to fund them or thinks they've got gaps and is not confident in their practice. 
But this creates a vicious circle where funders aren't aware of the challenges and the financial needs that organisations have in order to implement safeguarding effectively. So wherever you can, I would really recommend that you talk to funders about it, explain what the needs are and explain the costs that are involved. If they don't automatically allow you to include a budget line, you might be able to include it in some of the other core costs. Or I've known funders when, they've, when they fully understand what the issues are, who will make adjustments to the funds that are available that I know that I have been involved in and other funders that I work with, who an organisation has raised concern about needing to address safeguarding. They've allowed them to move their budget around so that they can allocate some of the funding towards safeguarding or also to reduce their target numbers. So if you've been expected to deliver a specific number of services or reach a specific number of people that those can be reduced so that you could because actually you need time and costs so that you can actually dedicate some of that time and some of that funding to achieving your safeguarding. I think the, the main point is to really be clear about what you need and then to express that to the funders that you're working with. Thank you so very much, Karen, for very illuminating perspectives from a funder's perspective and informing us quite clearly that every aspect has a cost and that there are um, demands on time as well as money. And thank you also for leaving us with clear advice on what CSOs can do um, to access funding. So now let's hear your experience, Farida, as a civil society organization implementing humanitarian programs in uh, the conflict uh, affected northeast of Nigeria. Tell us, Farida, what has been your experience in getting funding for safeguarding activities? We'd like to hear what worked well and any challenges you may have had, what didn't work so well. Over to you, Farida. Okay, thank you very much. Pleased to be here with you to share a little knowledge on safeguarding. Getting funding for safeguarding has not been easy for us, after undergoing the mentorship, six-month mentorship program with RSH, I felt learning should take place. And that was how I got engaged with other team members in project design. Using the safeguarding in budget document shared by the mentor, we use that as a guide. And some donors, some donors are interested when organizations try to show commitment to ensure their programming does not cause harm, especially during due diligence. It became easier for GZDI to secure little funds to procure some complaints and feedback mechanism tools like IEC materials for sensitization and uh, like some phones were bought, so many phones, like almost six were bought for and allocated to CFM personnel with a communication allowance attached for receiving complaints and feedbacks. And to add to that, we also got a mini mobile CFM structure 
being installed in each community. When we go for any activity, we install the community feedback mechanism decks there to receive complaints and feedbacks. So, and for some donors, some are interested with supporting some safeguarding related activities, but some feel um, and also complain of limited funds. And some donors are still reluctant on funding safeguarding activities. An example of this is GZDR, including transport reimbursement to facilitate access to referrals for GBV survivors. And due to the locality where GZDI works in, in the Northern Senatorial Zone of Adamawa State of Nigeria, close to Maiduguri. So this donor explicitly mentioned that this is not a protection standalone project. And I was shocked, like this is safeguarding what he mentioned or they mentioned that this is not a protection standalone project. So that was how we were not able to get some funding to facilitate referrals of GBV survivors, despite several justification made by GZDI on the centrality of safeguarding and how important it was for us to be carrying out this activity due to the nature of the location where we work. I think this is some of the challenges we faced in securing funding for safeguarding. Thank you so much, Farida, for those very practical examples, how you got your team involved from the project uh, design phase and even providing phones for community feedback. And, you know, thank you for sharing with us the challenges where, you know, donors are uh, reluctant to provide transport for referrals that takes us back, I guess, to what Karen shared earlier about having that conversation with funders. And now let's hear from Sati. Sati, you're a safeguarding consultant working largely in development programs. Do share with us your experience, please. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here and be part of this podcast and to share some of my experiences working in the development sector. My experience has been quite interesting and I would say a two-sided coin. So I've worked with both larger organizations or NGOs and as part of the RSH mentorship, I've also worked with much smaller, less resourced TSOs. So it's been very interesting because for the larger organizations, you find that they are funded by larger donors such as FCDO, USAID, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or the UN. And most of the larger um, donors understand what safeguarding is or protection from sexual exploitation and abuse. So usually, especially for FCDO um, programs or projects, there is that mandatory requirements for organizations to have a budget line for safeguarding. But when you come to the smaller, less resourced uh, organizations or CSOs, some of them are also sub-grantees of grants that are given by, by these large donors. So you find that at that level, there are no budget lines for safeguarding. I remember that one of the CSOs I, was, I mentored actually asked me when we started to talk about adding safeguarding as a budget line and budgeting for safeguarding and funding for safeguarding as part of their mentorship they actually asked me to speak to their funder at the time because they said if we add in safeguarding as a budget line 
our funder would reject it and they would, they would not see the need for safeguarding. So this really brought me to see that it is important that first, there should be a push from the larger donors who fund um, such organizations to also push that whoever they are subgranting is also putting in a budget line for safeguarding. So that's on the one hand. There's also the need for funders to be aware of, of safeguarding and the importance of safeguarding. Why is safeguarding important? Um, Karen has already highlighted this, that if you're going to have a positive program, you have to ensure that that program does no harm. So how do you ensure that there's money available for implementing the activities to ensure that harm is not caused to project beneficiaries or to even your staff? So it's very important that there is a lot of awareness raising and a push comes from the donors to the funders and then to the sub-grantees uh, of these grants. Karen also touched on something that I found very important. I think the push can also come from the CSOs themselves, but it's how you approach your funders and say, this is why we need a budget line for safeguarding. This is what we are going to do with those, um, those resources. And this is going to be the outcome of these resources um, of, of implementing these activities. So I think this is also very important in terms of um, funding for safeguarding and from my own experience. Thanks so very much, Sati. Quite a bit of practical experience there as well. And thanks for sharing with us that it's, you know, this two-sided coin. Indeed, it's not one size that fits all, showing us the differences between the larger CSOs who are, you know, who attract funding from the larger donors, and then the less resourced CSOs who are more likely to be sub-grantees. Well, I'm going to come back to you in the order in which we started to know if you've got any additional information for our listeners. And I invite you to please leave some parting words of wisdom for our listeners on funding for safeguarding. Starting with you, Karen, please. I think as the, the previous kind of experiences show, that this is something that is not, it's not necessarily going to be easy, but it's really critical to the work that everyone is doing. I think what I would say is that I spend all of my time talking to funder agencies. That's, that's what I do every day. And I think when I was on the other side, I had the perception that funders weren't that interested, didn't really understand it, um, and uh, it was going to be a difficult challenge trying to change people's perceptions and getting them to understand the importance of it. Having moved from being in an NGO into the funder sector, actually there's a real commitment. So I guess my, my kind of parting comments is there is hope there is people the funding funders that I'm dealing with do want to do the right thing they do want to keep people safe they're working what we're doing is we're working out that journey with them so what I would say is keep on having the conversations keep on talking about the importance of it of this 
this aspect of the work because things are changing and they will only continue to change with us bringing this up all the time and just reinforcing the importance in the conversations that we have with funder organisations. Thanks, Karen, for those very reassuring words, especially that there is indeed hope and we should keep that conversation going. Farida, your words of wisdom. I just want to remind us, the general public, that nobody is solely responsible for safeguarding, but rather uh, safeguarding should be a collective responsibility where everyone is committed to ensuring that people are treated with respect and dignity and also the environment where we work is free from any form of violence, abuse, exploitation and harassment. And additionally, we should help break the culture of silence and encourage reportage of such acts when we come in contact with a survivor. I think that's all from my side. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Farida. Another great uh, takeaway there that safeguarding is our collective responsibility for which we can together break the culture of silence. And Sati, can we hear your parting words of wisdom, please? I would like to say that it's exciting to see what's happening, especially when it comes to safeguarding in the development world, because for some time there was a lot of emphasis on, on safeguarding in relation to the humanitarian world. So it's exciting to see that shift um, now come to the development world. And with more awareness of, of CSOs, of donors, of funders, of the importance of safeguarding, I believe that in, years to, in, in a few years to come, a lot more donors, funders would be funding um, safeguarding in different programs. So again, there is definitely hope and things are changing. Maybe not at the pace that we want, but they are changing. I would also like to say that CSOs, in my experience, from what I, um, I shared earlier, they have the power as well to, you know, find ways of enlightening or sensitizing their funders when it comes to safeguarding so that they can include this as a budget line in their programs. So again, it's about showing them why and how and what activities are going to be implemented and the importance of this to uphold the do no harm um, principle. Thank you, Sate, for reinforcing that message of hope and showing us from what you've said that, you know, it's no longer, safeguarding is no longer the exclusive preserve of those in the humanitarian space, but, you know, now in the development space. And indeed, let's keep having that conversation with the donors. Well, listeners, we've come to the end of today's podcast. I would like to thank our panelists again, Karen, Farida, and Sate. Thank you very much for your very insightful and illuminating perspectives today. Thank you to all of you, our listeners. I do hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can submit any questions or 
any requests for support in developing or implementing your safeguarding policy and RSH provides this support free. You can send your request to the email specific to this, which is askanexpertnigeria at rshub, that's rshub.org.uk. I'll repeat that. Ask an expert Nigeria at rshub.org.uk. And if you want to learn more about the RSH program, why not visit our online hub? Our website is safeguardingsupporthub.org. You can also join us uh, on social media. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And do subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you again for joining and see you on our next podcast. Bye for now.